Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that we have Christ. Father, and, and that Christ has us. We are in his hand and nothing could snatch us from it. And Father, we pray that you would do a work in us this morning as we study your word. We want to hear your voice. We need more than the voice of a mere man and I'm resting in the power of the Holy Spirit to teach us the truth of the scriptures today, Father. Would you teach us from the word? And Lord, we pray not only for ourselves but for those in this community who are gathering. We know we're not the only show in town. This isn't the only true church of Jesus Christ and we pray for gospel teaching churches all throughout this city, throughout this county that you'd pour out your power on the people of God that a great movement, we're asking for a great awakening in our lifetime in this community. So Lord, would you send that among your churches and may that reach the corners of Brevard County and expand to the four corners of this globe. Lord, this morning I pray for my good friend Jim. Thank you for his ministry. I pray that we would be a church who loves him well as a member of our church family. Lord, would you fill his calendar with opportunities to preach the gospel around this nation? We thank you for how you've gifted him, how you've blessed us through him and we don't want to be hoarders of your blessings so we ask give us opportunity to keep sending him out and enriching your church through your word in his life encourage him today use him today wherever he might be teaching and father I also pray for my my good buddy Corky and I thank you for his ministry the partnership that he has and the investment he's had in my life and Lord I pray you'd bless him right now he's preaching the word of God I pray that in his physical weakness God you would show your strength empower him to know and love and live and proclaim the one and only gospel of Jesus Christ and empower the people of Georgiana to love and believe and obey the one and only gospel of Jesus Jesus Christ. And Lord, I take heart as a weak, small man that you delight in using weak, small people. Father, it is not the wise and noble of this world that confounds the ways of the world. It's the weak and foolish things like me. And Father, our hope and glory today and only boast is Jesus and Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray and all of God's people say, amen. We're going to continue our study in the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. So turn to the revelation and it's it's at the very end of the, the Bible, if you're not familiar, the very last book in the Bible, Revelation chapter two. Uh, if you remember, the book of Revelation is written to seven churches, seven literal churches that existed in the first century. And, and the message of this book is for all of the churches, not only those seven, but all of the churches of Jesus Christ that have ever or will ever exist on the face of the earth. But in chapters two and three, Jesus tailors his message to the churches for each one of these individual churches. And, and while these specific messages go to these individual churches, we also know that the messages apply to all the churches as well. And there's something for us to learn from every one of these messages. And so we're in the second message to the church uh, of Jesus Christ in chapter two, the church and the city of Smyrna. And so I'm gonna read verses eight through 11 from the English Standard Version of the Bible, Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan, do not fear what you're about to suffer. 
Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is the word of God for us today. Let me just give you a little bit of background on the city of Smyrna. If you're anything like me, you're not very familiar with first century churches in the Middle East or first century cities in the Middle East as well. The city of Smyrna was a a very influential Roman city. It actually was positioned with a beautiful harbor there uh, on the Aegean Sea. It was about 35 to 40 miles north of the city of Ephesus, which we studied last time we were in the book of Revelation. It was not just an influential or affluent city uh, that had a lot of wealth. It was, it was also a, a city that was very loyal to Rome. There were some cities like Jerusalem that were known in the first century for their upheaval and their uprisal, their rebellion against Roman oppression. And there were other cities like Smyrna that were actually built on a reputation of being deeply loyal to Roman occupation and Roman governance. So Smyrna was loyal to Rome. They were the first city in the Roman Empire to build a temple to the goddess Roma. That's actually the goddess that Rome is named after. They were the city in Asia that that was chosen to build a temple to Caesar Tiberius in order to worship Caesar as a little G God. As a matter of fact, it became a sort of headquarters for Caesar worship in this region of the world. As many of you know, in the first century in the Roman Empire, people who were subjects of Rome had to confess that Caesar was a god and the way they would do that is by kneeling down and saying, Caesar is Lord. Well, first century Christians, as all true Christians, refused to acknowledge any other Lord but Jesus, right? So that became a huge point of persecution for the early church. They refused to acknowledge Caesar is Lord because they acknowledged Jesus is Lord. So a wealthy, affluent, influential city, loyal to Rome. Smyrna also had a huge population of Jews and they were also loyal to Rome. And so that meant as as loyal Jews who came alongside the Roman agenda, they were given a lot of privileges, a lot of rights, a lot of special treatment around among the the Roman leaders. And so remember, early Christianity is considered an offshoot of Judaism. So a lot of people in the first century considered Jews and Christians to be in one big lump. So, so this, this so-called offshoot of Judaism, sometimes they called it a sect of the Jews, that meant lots of people would lump Jews and Bible-believing Christians together. And so if you were a group of wealthy, Caesar-loving Jews who enjoyed the favor of Roman leaders in this beautiful, wealthy city like Smyrna, the last thing you wanted was to be lumped in together with a group of Jesus-loving Christians who said there is no other Lord but King Jesus, who would even go so far as to say that Jesus is the Lord of Caesar. These Jews want nothing to do with these Christians who bow before Jesus as Lord. So what likely happened here in first century Smyrna is that this group of Jews began to try and distance or separate themselves from Christians by spreading all kinds of things around about the Christians, things that were true, like these Christians refuse to acknowledge the worship of Caesar, and then also things that were false, like they're dangerous, 
They're rebellious. They want to overthrow Rome itself. And so these Jews were spreading around all kinds of things about these Christians in the city of Smyrna. And that makes verses nine and 10 make a lot of sense. Look at verses nine and 10 again. He says, I know your tribulation. You're already suffering. You're already going through hardship and your poverty. You've lost your jobs. You've lost your influence. I I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And look at this, the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. They're not the real thing. They're not real followers of God. They're not real worshipers of God. They're just parading by name only. They're actually a synagogue of Satan. Verse 10, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you'll have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. You hear hear what Jesus says there? You're suffering. You're suffering. You're going through tribulation and here's the news. You're getting ready to suffer more than you already have been suffering. These so-called Jews that are all around you that aren't the real thing, they're they're name only Jews. These so-called Jews are making your life hard and they're really just pawns of Satan. And for a while, here's what you need to know. It's gonna cost you something to be associated with me, Jesus says. It's gonna cost you something. It may even cost you your life. And notice what Jesus says to these people who are suffering, who are going to suffer even more, possibly to the point of death. He gives them two commands in verse 10. Verse 10 starts out with the imperative, a command. And he says, do not fear. The the last sentence in verse 10 starts with another imperative, a command. He says, be faithful unto death. Here's the message of Jesus to a church that's suffering, not because of anything they've done wrong, but because they are aligning their lives with Jesus Christ. Jesus says this, do not fear it, be faithful through it. Do not fear it, be faithful through it. That's the big idea of this passage of scripture. Christ honoring response to suffering isn't fear, it's faithfulness. It isn't fear, it's faithfulness. And before I point out what Jesus gives to us that should encourage our hearts to not fear and to be faithful through suffering, I just want to point out that suffering in this particular instance is happening to faithful Christians who are following hard after Jesus Christ. And the reason I point that out is that there's a great number of prosperity teachers who are growing by the moment in our nation. Teachers like Creflo Dollar and Joel Osteen who are teaching that if you will follow Jesus faithfully in this life, you won't experience suffering. You'll experience your best life now. Church, that is not biblical. The Bible is filled with stories of men and women who faithfully followed God, who believed and obeyed God, and who suffered to the point of death. I'll give you a pretty good example. His name is Jesus. Has anyone followed more faithfully the call of God the Father? No. Has anyone been more perfectly obedient than Jesus? No. And what happened to Jesus? He suffered to the point of death. 
Suffering is a part of the Christian experience because it's a part of life on a broken, sinful planet that's hostile to God. I want to give you just a couple of passages of Scripture. You don't need to turn there. You can write them down. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 says, Indeed, all who, suffer, who, who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. How many? All. That seems pretty conclusive to me. I'm not a Greek scholar, but come on now. First Peter chapter four, verses 12 through 13 says this. Beloved, do not be surprised. Don't be shocked at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is to be revealed. You should not be shocked by suffering. In John chapter 15, verse 12, Jesus himself says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they have persecuted me, they will want to, to do the same to you. They will persecute you. We need a biblical theology of suffering in the American church. Jesus doesn't rebuke the people in Smyrna for their faithlessness that brought on suffering. You didn't have enough faith. You didn't do it all right. You weren't given enough money. You didn't sow enough seed gifts into my traveling ministry. He doesn't say that. He encourages these believers who are already being faithful to remain faithful. This is the first letter of these seven where Jesus doesn't rebuke these believers for something. He encourages them, remain faithful. And church, I want to do the same for you this morning. It is very possible that in our lifetimes and very soon, the American church will experience persecution like we've never seen as a nation. That that reality is just upon us. That we will experience some version, some degree, some scale of persecution for being faithful to Jesus Christ, for standing on what the Bible says as the very word of God. And church, Jesus has a word for us today. Do not fear it. Be faithful through it. And some of you are already suffering in various ways. You're going through physical, financial, relational pain. And while there is a pain that can be the result of our own disobedience and we should repent when that is the case or a form of discipline in our life, there is also the reality suffering is a part of faithful Christian living. living. So friends that are suffering in this room this morning with unimaginable pain, my call to you is don't lose heart. Don't don't lose heart if you're in the valley of suffering. Jesus has a word for you today. Do not fear it. Be faithful through it. Remain faithful, friends. Stay the course. Believe and obey Jesus. And church, I've got to tell you, I am concerned that much of professed Christianity in our nation is not ready to suffer to the point of death, to be faithful to the point of death. And the reason I say that is because I'm convinced much of professed Christianity is not willing to be faithful even to the point of inconvenience. 
we squirm and we murmur and we complain and we fall away whenever the climate is anything less than ideal. Whenever the church isn't able to satisfy our consumer demands, we run the other way when an expectation is actually expressed from some church leader about our personal responsibility to share the gospel of Jesus or to open our homes and our lives to people in our community or build personal relationships that demonstrate the gospel of Jesus outside of this room. We sort of have this collective moan and say, man, that's asking too much. I don't have that kind of time. We are not going to give our lives for Jesus if we're not even willing to give our time for Jesus. We've adopted this perversion of Christianity that basically says the role of the church of Jesus is to cater to every preferential whim of every particular group within every demographic of our culture at large. And whenever following Jesus actually costs us something, whenever we're actually gonna lose something in the deal, we bail and we head to the place that's gonna scratch our particular itch. We're afraid to give up our time, our money, our pursuit of cultural expectations. We're willing to travel all over the world to kingdom come to put our four-year-old on a t-ball team, but we feel disgusted anytime the cause of Jesus threatens to put us out at all. Friends, I can pretty much guarantee we will not be faithful to the point of death if we aren't willing to be faithful to the point of inconvenience. We're not gonna give our life for Jesus if we're not willing to give our time and our money and our plans and our parenting and our hobbies and our dreams and our reputations and our influence for the cause of Jesus Christ. And the call of Jesus to people who follow him is be faithful when it costs you something, even to the point of death. And let me show you what Jesus says that should encourage our hearts not to be afraid to remain faithful to the point of death. First of all, Jesus reminds us of who he is. Look at verse eight again. And to the angel in the church at Smyrna, write, and here's his quote, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Jesus says, I am the first and the last. Now that's a quote from Isaiah 44. You guys don't need to turn there unless you want to, but Isaiah 44 says this, verse six, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Beside me, there is no God. Who is like me? Proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what's to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from old and declared it? You're my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? There is no rock. I know not any. When Jesus says, I'm the first and the last, you know what he's saying? He's saying from Isaiah 44, I'm God. I'm God and there's no one like me. Caesar is no match for me. Satan is no match for me. Cancer is no match for me. Poverty is no match for me. Being hated by your culture is no match for me. No politician, no government, no influence is a match for me. And I am with you. I am right beside you. I had the first word when I created everything and I will have the last word when I bring it all to a God honoring end. I'm God. 
That's what Jesus says. I'm God. Who is like me? Who is possibly going to challenge me or be a, an impediment to me? There's, he says it himself, there's no one like me. I'm the first and the last, the one and only God. And then he adds this other element of who he is. In verse eight, he says, I'm the one who died and came back to life. You know what that's a reminder of? It's a reminder that Jesus has already been through death for us. And guess what? He beat it. You hear that? He beat it. That's how he's removing the fear of death for people who may be facing death. What's the worst that suffering's gonna do for us? It's gonna kill us, right? The reason we're afraid of suffering is because ultimately it might take our life. And Jesus says, hey man, remember who I am. Nothing is a match for me. I've already been through death. I've defeated it for you. I've taken away its sting. That's why verse 11 says, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Who's the one who conquers? Does the Bible say about this? Go back a couple books to 1 John chapter five. Man, I thought this was gonna be a relaxing sermon for me and I'm all worked up. I put the sweat in sweater, man. That's all I'm saying, dude. I may not preach like T.D. Jakes, but I can sweat like the man. First John chapter five. First John chapter five. This is sharing with us who it is that conquers. Look at verse four of first John five. For everyone who has been born, now look at this, who's been born of God Overcomes. Now that word overcome, in, in the original language, it's the same word in 1 John 5 as the word in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 that's translated conquer in Revelation 2. It's translated overcome in 1 John 5. That's the exact same word. The, the one who overcomes the world is the one who's been born of God. And this is the victory that overcomes the world. What is it? Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? The one who overcomes church, the one who conquers, the one who does not need to fear the second death is the one who believes and depends on Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, the great victor of God's people, the one who defeated death, hell, sin, and the grave for us. Listen to me, if you are not depending on Jesus, Jesus Christ alone to save you from your sin, you have everything to fear in death. That that is not a fear tactic. That's the honest biblical truth because the Bible says there is a worse death than physical death. That's what So verse 11 is pointing to, go to Revelation chapter 20. It's almost the very end of the book. I'm going to show you this in Revelation chapter 20. It says, after all the things that must take place have taken place, we're nearing the end of all things into eternity. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 says this, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, 
and no place was found for them. The very universe ran, ran from the one on this throne and there was no place to hide. Verse 12, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books that had been opened according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the death who were in them and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire, period. End of sentence for the rest of the Bible. That's the end for those outside of Jesus Christ. Listen, Jesus came to this earth to live the life that you and I could not live, a life of perfect obedience to God the Father. His life was perfectly pleasing to God so that when he died, his death was perfectly acceptable to God as a payment for the punishment of our sin. The Bible says that he laid, God laid on Jesus the iniquity, the sin of us all so that any who trust in Jesus Christ Any who trust in Jesus Christ are united to his death so that their sin is punished in Jesus and his perfect life is applied to their spiritual account. That means that if you are not trusting in Jesus, you're not united to Jesus. His life is not united to yours and neither is his death. And that means death is going to usher you into an eternity that is filled with punishment over sin. But your death isn't like Jesus' death because your life isn't like Jesus' life. You haven't lived a perfectly obedient life and so your death can't satisfy God's demand for your sin and so your punishment will never satisfy God in the sense that it would be over. That's the second death, a torment that lasts forever. That's what the Bible teaches. And I would not be faithful or gracious or merciful if I didn't challenge every one of us this morning to consider our hearts are you trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone to save you and make you right with God the Father If you are not certain that your relationship with God is secure by faith, dependence in Jesus Christ, then my plea to you is do not enter eternity without turning to Jesus today. Do not leave this room this morning and I do not want to try and just stir up some emotional response. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit will give you eyes to see whether or not you're depending on Jesus today. But my plea is the same. Do not leave this place and face eternity without Jesus Christ. He is our only hope, our only source of life and for all of you who are depending on Jesus to rescue you you're depending on his life in your place his death in your place his resurrection on your behalf you need to know something you have nothing to fear in death 
You hear that? You have nothing to fear in death. Jesus has taken your sin and he's given you his righteousness and your eternal destiny is not punishment. It is pleasure forevermore by the right hand of God the Father. So why would you fear what man or death could do to you? Jesus, the defeater of death, hell, sin, and and the grave, the giver of eternal life, says to his church, church, I'm with you. I'm the Almighty mighty God. I'm the first and the last. I've been through death. It'll be okay. I defeated it for you. Don't be afraid. Be faithful. Be faithful unto death. Now, one one other thing that Jesus does is he not only reminds us of who he is, he reminds us of what matters most. Look at verse nine. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty but you're rich. See that? I, you're, you're poor. That word for poor is extremely poor. It, it was used to describe people who'd not only lost their money, they basically lost their ability to earn more money. They had no income and they had no prospects for work. They were reduced to basically begging people for mercy in their city. They were the ones who would just sit and ask someone, please give me something. They were extremely destitute. That word rich is the other end of the spectrum. It's filthy, stinking. Donald Trump, you look like a moron because I'm so much... It's richer than you. Oh, I almost went onto a crazy road there. Uh, it's this wealth beyond compare in comparison to a poverty beyond compare. That's what Jesus is saying. You are poorer than anyone could even imagine, and you are richer than you could even imagine. What's Jesus saying here? What's, what's he doing here? What he is doing in this sentence is he's exposing what matters the most. He's pointing out something that what this world says is most valuable isn't most valuable. Things like money and influence and social acceptance, they're all indicators our world uses to determine how well off we are. That is not what's most valuable in reality. The Christians in Smyrna had Jesus. They had the promise of eternal life. They had the hope of heaven. They had the pleasure forevermore that's at the right hand of God, the Father. They had forgiveness of their sins. They were saints. They had an eternal inheritance that was preserved for them in heaven above. They had greater wealth than anything this world could ever give them. Then Jesus is saying, that's what matters most. Keep living like you value most what's most valuable. That's what he's saying there. And church, this is a message we need to hear too. It's not a sin to have money. It's not a sin to have a nice home. But if you are living for the pursuit of what this world values most, you are wasting your life. If you're living for a higher paying job or a bigger house or a nicer car, then you are wasting your life. If you're living to see your kids get a better education or fast-tracked on sports careers, if you're willing to give your time and your effort and your energy to the things this world values most and you value them most as well, you are wasting your life. Remember what Jesus said What profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Then he follows up with this question. What would you give in exchange for your soul? Listen, life is filled with decisions that we have to make where we're constantly exchanging certain things. 
based on what we think is most valuable. When my kids were really little, and I know they're still uh, fairly small, they're getting bigger every day, they'll argue with me, they're big kids. Um, But when they were really, really little, I learned a very powerful parenting tool. It's called the power of exchange. Uh, There were times when my kids would grab or get hold of something that I didn't want them to have, like a a sharp stick or one of our cell phones. Our our one-year-old daughter called 911 from my wife's cell phone at a bank once. Um, And of course, Emily's saying, you know, everything's okay. And they think, oh, who's making you say it's okay? No, it's really okay. So they show up. Well, there are times when your kids had something that you didn't want them to have. And I learned that there were two ways to go about getting that thing from them, right? You'd overpower them and just snatch that thing away, which I was always amazed at the pound for pound strength of a one-year-old's grip. Have you ever, have you ever realized that? You weigh 30 pounds and I cannot wrestle that fork away from you. Just prying those chubby little fingers away. Emily, I'm going to need your help here. That kind of a deal, right? So then you had that fight of the, I'm going to overpower you by force, but you had something that worked way better. It's the power of exchange. If I could just find something they wanted more, what would I do? I'd just trade them, right? Here you go, sweetie. You don't want Nanny's antique doll. You want this candy bar. I know you do. And they would drop what you didn't want them to have and take up what you did want them to have. And that worked in kids because that's human nature. That's who we are. People just are naturally willing to exchange something that we have for something that we think is more valuable. And Jesus is encouraging us as his church, keep making the right exchange. These people are living for the name and the glory of Jesus. And guess what? It's costing them something. It's costing them jobs and promotions and nicer houses and elaborate vacations. They're being inconvenienced with their time and with their reputation and with their ability to blend in a society and a culture. They're giving up leisures of life and certain things like like wonderful, wonderful evenings peacefully at home. Ultimately, they're gonna be giving up their own lives and Jesus is looking at them and saying, it's worth it. Keep up the trade. Sure, you've lost your job. Sure, you've lost your retirement. Sure, you've lost your big house. Sure, you've lost your four-wheel drive turbo diesel chariot. Sure, you've lost your influence and your popularity among people who don't value Jesus. Sure, you've lost those things, and soon you might even lose your life. And here's what Jesus says to them. You're making the right trade. Keep it up. You aren't losing, you're gaining. So much so that in verse 10, he says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. This crown is the kind of crown that was given to elite athletes who had won a race. They would form a crown out of garland and when an athlete would win a race, they would take that crown and they would put it on the head of the winner of that event. And for those who willingly live for the name and glory and mission of Jesus Christ, those who faithfully follow and believe and obey Jesus, listen friends, There is a day that is coming when all of the suffering and all of the pain and all of the persecution and all of the sacrifice and all of the sickness and all of the tears will pass away and Jesus is gonna gather his people to himself and there are gonna be men, women, children all over the world who gave up money and fame and comfort and pleasure
exposure and acceptance on this earth in order to spread the fame of Jesus on that life. And listen, on that day, Jesus will be there. They will stand before him. He will place a winner's crown on their heads. And those who value Jesus more than any other thing, who valued most, who is most valuable, those who were willing to be inconvenienced and suffer and die for the name of Jesus will stand before Jesus. People like individuals in our church, Tommy and Amy Blaylock, a young couple. Tommy just finished his nursing career. Not his career, his degree. He's got a great career ahead of him and choosing to give that up to serve Jesus in parts of this world. I can't tell you where they're going to serve for their own safety. Dave and Catherine Crawford, we sent them out over a year ago. They have willingly given up their medical practice. They're raising their two little girls in Malawi for the sake of Jesus Christ, not the American dream. I just got an email a couple days ago from Kelly Motes. You remember we sent her out last fall, girl in her mid to early 20s who's living in northern Uganda for the sake of the gospel of Jesus. Remember for those who live like Jesus is most valuable, the very first message of Revelation 1 is this, behold, Jesus is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him and on that day, Jesus Christ himself will look into all of our eyes and he will say to those who valued him above their lives and their homes and their political careers and their financial investments, he will say, well done, my child. You did well. You lived well. You died well. You chose the better part, not the fleeting pleasure of life on that fading planet, but the eternal pleasure forevermore at my Father's right hand. You did well. And brothers and sisters, my question, what are you willing to trade that for? In your life, in your job, in your family, in your plans, in your dreams, what are you willing to trade for that? A little bit of pleasure here and there? A little bit nicer house, a little bit fancier car, a little more financial freedom in retirement. Really? Really? On that day when you are face to face with Jesus, what are you doing in your life today? You think you'll be glad you did. What did you give away that you will say that wasn't a loss? That wasn't a loss at all. That was a gain. That was a gain. All of you who are suffering right now, and for all of us who may be in the days that lie ahead, hear the words of Jesus Christ our Lord. You will respond to suffering with faithfulness and not fear when you remember who Jesus is and what matters most. So live like you believe Jesus matters most. Would you bow your heads and enter into a moment of prayer? The reality that we may be facing persecution, some of us already are, should be a sobering thought. And the only way to combat the sobriety of that with joy is thinking about who Jesus is for us. I'm gonna ask you right there, just between you and God, would you begin praying that God would prepare your heart today 
for any persecution you may face, any suffering you may face in your tomorrows. Do you know that you are depending on Jesus and Jesus alone? Overcoming, conquering only comes through faith in the work of Jesus Christ. Are you trusting in Jesus alone? How is your life displaying that you value most what is most valuable? Would you, would you ask right now, ask God to prepare your heart to give up your very life, your dreams, your plans, your preferences for the name and cause of Jesus Christ? Would you pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are already today facing death? They are facing death today because they've aligned their life with Jesus. Would you pray that God would cause the presence of his son to be so close to them that they would not be afraid and they would be faithful to death? Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the work of Christ on our behalf. We thank you that Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior, has conquered death on our behalf and there is no one like him. There is nothing that can compare to him and he is with us. Thank you, Father, that Jesus Christ has delivered from the sting of death all who will trust in him so that we could pass safely through the valley of death's shadows and say he is with us and he comforts us and grace and mercy will follow us all the days of our life and we will dwell in the house of our Lord together. Father, thank you for Jesus. God, give us the resolve, give us the strength, give us the wisdom to live like Jesus matters most because he does. Calls us to be willing to lay down all of the things that this culture says are most valuable in order to proclaim the name of Jesus in word and deed in this community and around the world. Calls us to let go of our plans and dreams and careers, our families, Father, our, our ties to a community. Calls us to let those go for the name and sake of Jesus Christ. And may you cause us to be an army that marches forward in the name of Jesus and the love of Jesus, proclaiming the worth and fame and glory of Jesus until Jesus comes again. Do that work in us, Father, I pray. And I ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.